Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're in this worship series right now called Gird Up Your Loins, When All the News is Bad News. And we're reading scenes from the life and prophetic work of Jeremiah from the Hebrew Bible. Jeremiah's prophetic career spanning 40 years, his home city under constant threat and then attack and then siege and fall so that Jeremiah finishes his life as a refugee in a foreign land where he doesn't speak the language, grieving for the loss of his city and to some extent the loss of his identity, a sense of place and home. But long before his exile, he records this sorrowful poetry that we're gonna read in Jeremiah chapter eight, a note For those of you who are new, who are here tonight for the very first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, it's the season of Lent, y'all. We didn't pick that either, but it's a very somber season in the life of the church, and so sometimes we're in a better mood than we are tonight, just so you know. This is Jeremiah 8, 18 through chapter 9, verse 1. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark, the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah thumbs through a worn copy of Us Weekly. It's over a year old. He doesn't know any of the so-called celebrities in its pages. He supposes it's just another sign that he's old for the world. He checks his watch again. He was early, as usual, but now it is two minutes past his appointment time. His leg bounces on the ball of his foot. He's nervous. This is his first time. When the door opens, he stands up quickly. A woman with a gentle smile invites him into her office and gestures toward a sofa. Would you like a glass of water, she asks, ready to pour from a pitcher on the low coffee table. I'm okay, he says. Am I supposed to uh, lie down? You may, if you like, she says. But first, 
why don't you tell me what brought you here today? As if she can't already tell. His eyes are bloodshot and swollen. The dark circles under them are hollowed out by pain. His shoulders slump, and he moves like a person much older than the birth date on his intake form would indicate. Waves of exhaustion roll off his body. This is the most depleted person she may have ever seen in all her years of practice. My joy is gone, Jeremiah says, with a break in his voice. The tears spill over his eyelids as if they were waiting for an invitation. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. For the hurt of my poor people, I hurt. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. The therapist pushes a box of tissues a little nearer to her newest client. Her soft heart fills with compassion for his broken one. And after letting him weep in silence for a minute, she says, Thank you, Jeremiah. I believe you. I hope in weeks to come, you'll tell me all about it. You can start wherever you like. Where would Jeremiah start? Probably with his awareness as a young boy that God was all around him and his awakening to the reality that the world God loves was in serious trouble. He would tell how all his life he has felt responsible to keep his eyes open to the ugliest things all around him, to the exploitation of the small and the weak by the wealthy and powerful, to the collusion of his beloved religion with the elevation of corruption and greed, to his neighbor's endless substitution of worthless pursuits, money, military, a million major and minor mistakes for the source of all life and light and love. And he would tell how he lived his life in a weird, painful triangulation between the ones he loved the most how one of them insisted that Jeremiah speak on their behalf, even at great risk to himself, while the other threatened to kill him if he didn't shut up. His therapist would scribble her notes ferociously, marking this one as something they'd have to work on later and probably for a long time. And upon hearing Jeremiah's summary of his own sadness, what would she say in return? I'm no therapist, but I've been grateful to make use of a good several in my lifetime. And what I have appreciated about the best of them is that they don't try to talk you out of your misery. They do not placate your despair with platitudes or false good cheer. They do not tell you that God is good all the time or that God will not give you any more than you can handle or that everything happens for a reason, or that the sun will come up tomorrow, 
The church will peddle that crap, but a good therapist will not. For the good therapists in our lives, we say, thanks be to God. I recently read a definition of depression by North American neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky. It goes like this. If I had to define major depression in a single sentence, Sapolsky says, I would describe it as a genetic slash neurochemical disorder requiring a strong environmental trigger whose characteristic manifestation is an inability to appreciate sunsets. It's from his 1994 book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. What I love about Sapolsky's definition is that it recognizes depression as a perfect swirl of two distinct elements, like those chocolate and vanilla soft serve ice cream cones. The first is genetic slash neurochemical, something you're born with, something your brain is wired for, a potential you carry with you all the time. It is part of you. And while it may be helped with medication, and thanks be to God for good pharmaceuticals, it never goes away. And the second part of the swirl is a strong environmental trigger, Sapolsky says. Something in the world, something in your life, in your family, in your experiences. Something that wakes it up and feeds it. A loss, a trauma, a conflict, and awareness. Something that catches in your throat and brings tears to your eyes. Swirled together with that genetic slash neurochemical brain build, the sadness compounds and becomes too heavy for one person to hold. You require help to lift its weight before it crushes you. Jeremiah has, for centuries, been known colloquially as the weeping prophet. The passage that we read tonight is but one of lots of references in his prophetic literature to his own deep sorrow over what's happening all around him. In our Bibles, the book right after Jeremiah is Lamentations, a five-chapter funeral dirge for the destruction of Jerusalem in the Babylonian conquest of 586 BCE, the year Jeremiah was carried away to Egypt. For a long time, the poetry of Lamentations was attributed to Jeremiah, probably not historically accurate, but an honest mistake based on Jeremiah's propensity for his expression of despond. He was especially good at naming Sapolsky's strong environmental triggers for his tears. It was not only the destruction of the holy city and the exile of his beloved kinfolk, it was his recognition all along the way that these people, his own people, had forfeited so many chances to depend on God for their rescue. Idolatry is the easiest way to sum it up in Bible language as God interrupts Jeremiah's lament in chapter 8 to assert why, God asks rhetorically in verse 19, have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? Just hold that in your mind for a minute, remembering as we know from our own emotional educations in therapy that anger is so often a secondary emotion. 
Let us not reduce the sin of idolatry to the bowing down before little carved statues a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I mean, as we talked about last week, Jeremiah has located the indictment of God's people in their economic practices and the corrupt judiciary that enriches the wealthy at the expense of the poor and the religious leader's willingness to go along to get along. In other places in his prophetic rants, he will point specifically to the military as a poor place to spend the people's resources in hopes that salvation can ever be achieved through violence. And he will shake his fist at patriotism, the ridiculous assertion that God honors geopolitical boundaries and guarantees the prosperity of any nation, whether or not its people honor God. These are variations on a theme broadly called idolatry. The placement of trust in anything that is not God. And Jeremiah's prophetic task brings him to lament not only the consequences of the people's idolatry, but the deep down brokenness that turns their heads and hearts toward easier, faster, cheaper solutions to their problems than the expression of faithfulness as long obedience in the same direction. Now, part of sermon preparation is just living with a text for a week, just carrying it with you wherever you go, to the grocery store, to your friend's patio, through the sonic drive-in, to the quiet room of the big red barn for a conversation, on to Zoom for another conversation, to your home office, to Picklepalooza in Main Street, on Main Street in Mansfield, and to bed. You go to sleep with it at night. You wake up with it in the morning. And as I carried the weeping prophet with me last week, the one whose tears had literally dried up from too much weeping, who wished for a watery head so he could cry the more, I grew more and more appreciative. You thought I was going to say depressed. More and more appreciative for Jeremiah. And I began in my mind to compose a thank you letter to him that I'd like to share with you. Dear Jeremiah, you dear, sweet, soft-hearted soul, I'm writing to say thank you for your good work because all these centuries later, it is still bearing good fruit in this world God still loves. For one thing, Jerry, your voice is helping us break the chains of toxic masculinity. Your girded loins got you ready, not for battle of the physical kind mostly, but for the equally dangerous emotional, spiritual variety. You remain as an exemplar of strong men who cry, who feel their feelings, who know how to say where it hurts and why, who journal through their fears and losses, who are not keeping their suffering a secret. Thank you for defying the ridiculously gendered stereotypes of your day and ours that try to make us believe that boys don't cry, that real men don't go to therapy, that your strength is in your stubborn stoicism. 
Oh, your tender heart is sexy, Jeremiah, if I'm allowed to say that about an ancient prophet of the Lord. If not, please disregard that last line. More broadly, more personally, here's another thing I want to thank you for, Jeremiah. As a person who endures chronic low-grade depression and who has experienced dramatic spikes in the old serotonin reuptake when life has been at its hardest, I'm grateful to see sadness normalized in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for being honest about the crying jags, the sleepless nights, the pain in your body, exhaustion in your soul, the inability to concentrate, the inability even to move on some of the worst days. Thank you for telling the truth that being close to God does not always mean the suffering goes away. Indeed, I have wondered lately whether God might have chosen you, Jeremiah, because you had that genetic slash neurochemical disposition. Remember how you said that God knew you before your cells came together in your mother's womb? That God picked you out to be God's prophet before you were born back in chapter one? Oh, of course you do, you wrote it. Well, Jeremiah, what if God was waiting and watching for a double helix of DNA that had a little brain glitch built in, a tiny tangle that would make an embryo grow into an adult human with the capacity to feel everything at the most extreme level, every heartache felt in every cell for the rest of their life? What if God needed you, chose you for that? Because anyone with neurotypical emotional regulation might be able to slough off the seriousness of all that God needed you to see and say. What if the only right disposition of the one who speaks truth to power is grief? Grief for the world's deep brokenness. Grief over all the ways people hurt and diminish one another. Grief over all the times it looks like the bad guys are winning like fear is winning. In which case, Jeremiah, you are exactly the right person for the job. And that gives me hope that the sadness of so many of us in my beloved community is a feature, not a bug. And just one more thing in this thank you letter that is already almost too long. Thank you, Jeremiah, for showing us the sorrowing heart of God. Because it's become more and more clear to us over all the centuries of reading your words that not all the sorrow you expressed was strictly your own. When you said, for the hurt of my poor people I am hurt, when you said that you wept day and night for your poor people, maybe you were even then channeling God's own expression of lament, God's own broken heart over the broken world and the broken relationship between God and God's poor people. I'm saying maybe God chose you over all the stoic, implacable, immovable men that were available because God is not stoic, implacable, or immovable. 
Maybe your hurting heart was indeed the heart of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Jeremiah, for everything, for 40 years of crying. I hope whatever the accommodations are like in the heart of God where you reside now and forever, that you are getting all the in-network therapy your healing heart desires with no copays. In gratitude, Katie, your sometimes sad companion on this beautiful journey of faith. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.